I'd like to talk tonight about mercy. We live in an era of mercilessness. And so we believe that mercilessness is our only choice when we listen to the larger culture, at least. If we think about that larger culture's mercilessness, it's examples are everywhere. For instance, our most popular TV broadcasters, they make their living by oversimplifying complex things and by telling us we'd be better off if we eliminated those people. It's merciless. When we turn on the news or we pick up the newspaper and we read stories of 300 mass shootings to date in the U.S., over 300 in six months' time. Stories of how people legally purchased weapons of war and used them to kill people who were watching parades or dancing in nightclubs or praying in a synagogue or learning to read in elementary school. Merciless. We must be the people who live by mercy, especially in these merciless times. Tonight I want to share some stories of mercy because we hear stories of mercilessness all the time. And we need stories of mercy to be able to balance ourselves, to know that there's a choice. And I'd also like to talk a little bit about what mercy is and how we might practice being more merciful towards ourselves and towards other people. So let's start with the first story. Bonki was a 17th century Japanese Zen master. And he's a, there's a famous story of how he forgave a thief. Bonki entered an extended meditation retreat and people from all over Japan came to join him. And one day, the folks that were there began to notice that someone was stealing things. They told Banki, but he was not willing to take any action against the thief. And the next day, the students caught the man stealing again, and they told Banki about it. And once again, Banki ignored the whole incident, did nothing to intervene with the thief. And then finally, people objected that they couldn't go on with the retreat when they knew that there was a thief among them and they demanded that he take the matter into his hands and expel the thief. They said they'd all leave the retreat unless he sent the thief away. But Banki said this, Brothers, you are wise. You know what's right and what's wrong. This brother of ours does not know right from wrong like you. If I do not teach him, then who will? I'm not going to expel him even if that means that all of you will leave. I will keep him beside me. Now, the thief overheard what Banki said, and he was so moved by Banki's compassion and big heart that he burst into tears. 
and he swore to himself that he would never steal again. And Banky was willing to have mercy on this man, even if it meant that all the other students left the retreat. Mercy isn't a word that comes up in Zen very often. It's not in our, in, our, in our language, but it's in the language of the larger spiritual community in the world. And I think it's a, a word that we can well bring into Zen because it gives us a really important practice. And the reason it's an important practice is that mercy asks us to take a step beyond empathy and compassion. So empathy, just to sort of review, we've talked about these things before, but I'd like to review this. Empathy means that we are feeling with another person. Their feeling becomes our feeling. And this is actually very natural for us to do as human beings. We have in our guts what are called mirror neurons, and mirror neurons fire in concert with others so that we actually feel what others feel. And these, these uh, mirror neurons, I imagine, I'm not, a, I'm not a biologist or an anthropologist, but I'm guessing that these probably evolved earlier in us than our thinking mind did because of how important it is that we feel the fear of the approaching danger and that we feel with our tribe so that we can get along with our tribe, we can act as one. That takes more feeling, more gut feeling than it does thinking. So I'm imagining that this, this evolved long, long ago and that it's not just a human trait. I'm imagining that my dog has mirror neurons because my dog knows exactly what I'm feeling. Empathy is a really important social foundation. And some of us don't easily feel empathy. It's not a given. Uh, some folks who, might, who are on the spectrum, for instance, in the autism spectrum, don't feel empathy as naturally or as easily. Uh, and some people with some mental illnesses like sociopaths and narcissists, they don't necessarily feel empathy and so we're very fortunate that we feel empathy because it's a very useful and important thing. So that's empathy, is feeling with another person. And then if we take the next step and we talk about compassion, compassion is acting on our empathy. So we feel, and then from that feeling, we act. Empathy being the feeling, compassion being the act. And we talk a lot about compassion in our practice, which is a, a lovely thing. Uh, and compassion it can be applied in many different ways. It can be applied towards individuals that I, that I know, for instance. It can be applied to individuals I don't know or to groups of people. I can feel compassion for people on the other side of the world that I've never had any contact with, but I can, I can um, imagine their situation, I can feel their situation, and then take some action. 
but mercy is a particular kind of compassionate action. To treat somebody with mercy means that we let go of our power over them. And I don't necessarily uh, have to act compassionately with someone I feel I have power uh, relationship with or a personal relationship with. But mercy is for those relationships that we have that are concrete to us and that have some power element. So here's a story about that power. And I'm going to talk more about that power in a minute. But I want to tell another story here. A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded his death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother said. I plead for mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon told her. Sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, Napoleon said, I'll have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. If we offer mercy only to those people that we believe deserved it, like Napoleon believed this, this man deserved his punishment for the crimes that he had done, if we only offer mercy to people we think deserve it, then it's not mercy. It's justice. Right? So if someone deserves to be set free, then in, in setting them free, we are doing the just act, not necessarily the merciful act. But in this story, Napoleon says, well, this man is guilty of this crime twice, and justice demands the punishment. And this man's mother said, but I don't ask for justice. I ask for mercy. So think for a moment of someone who has wronged you. Let's pause and think of that person and that action that they did that has wronged you. And that person may have not expressed any regret or sorrow for what they've done. That person may not have apologized for what they have done. And because they've wronged you and they've not made any attempt to make amends, justice does not ask us to release them from that. But mercy does. Mercy does. Now, before I go any farther, I don't want to imply for a moment that when I'm talking about mercy, I'm talking about putting ourselves in positions of danger. You know, there are people that we need to be, that we need to protect ourselves from. And I'm not suggesting at all that we put ourselves in a position where we are in danger. But mercy is an internal relationship 
to that person and the actions. It doesn't dictate a particular external action. I just want to be really clear about that. At its base, mercy means we are releasing our power over another. Justice doesn't mean that, but mercy does. Mercy is something we offer to ourselves and maybe outwardly to the person that has wronged us in a way that releases our sense of power over them. Let me talk a little bit about this power thing that I'm, that I'm suggesting. Relationships have a power dynamic to them. For example, a parent has power over a child and an employer has power over an employee. A member of an in-group has power over a member of an out-group. So there's lots of examples of this. So when there is a relationship, there's almost always a power dynamic. Now, we might think that that's simple. I gave some you know, examples, like a parent has power of a child. That seems simple. But in reality, these power relationships are very subtle, and they flow both directions. You know, there's the obvious power, but there's also the power of the other person that might not be so obvious. So, for instance, Napoleon obviously had power over that mother to grant or not grant her request for mercy for her son. But, you know, organized mothers can bring down a government. It's happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's a darn good thing, too. huh? Uh, a teacher has power over a sangha. But a sangha has the power to remove a teacher. As it should be, right? So these power relationships, while they seem obvious that one has power and the other doesn't. They're seldom one-sided. So let's think back to that person that you thought of earlier that has wronged you. Think first about the power that they have over you. And now consider the power that you have over them. It might not be obvious that you do have any power over them. But as you sit with this person that may have wronged you, how might it feel for you to give up the power of resentment? How might it feel for you to give up the power of anger? How might it feel for you to give up the power of self-righteousness? The power of self-protection? These are some pretty powerful things we hold on to. 
And you might notice that all of these types of power, that person may not know anything about. That person may have no idea that you're still holding resentment 40 years later. That you're angry for something they said that they don't remember even saying. That your self-righteousness somehow makes them realize they were wrong. Sounds like these illusions of power actually harm us. And this is what mercy is asking us to let go of. We in this Sangha are the powerful ones. We're powerful economically. We're powerful socially, historically, racially. And mercy is a wonderful practice as an antidote to our power. And it's, it's such a, a, a prevalent thing in our culture right now that we're analyzing the power held by certain groups over others, certain people over others. And we sometimes wonder, well, what do I do about that? Well, mercy gives us a concrete thing to do to practice as an antidote to that power. So when we practice this mercy antidote, it strips us of our self-righteousness and gives us actually the ultimate power, which is love. I love the Dalai Lama's term for this. He calls this emotional hygiene that we practice this emotional hygiene so that we're not holding on in the way that we want to think protects us, but actually harms us. So to be merciful is to give our power away, and in giving our power away, we find freedom. How about another story? Stephen McDonald, was a young police officer in 1986 when he was shot by a teenager in New York Central Park. And that shooting left him paralyzed. He said, I forgave the shooter because I believe the only thing worse than receiving a bullet in my spine would have been to nurture revenge in my heart. While the younger man was serving his prison sentence, McDonald corresponded with him, hoping that one day the two could work together to demonstrate forgiveness and nonviolence. Unfortunately, the young man died in a motorcycle accident only three days after his release. So McDonald still travels the country and delivers his message of mercy. Now I find this moving because Stephen McDonald was a police officer and he had power. He had power within the justice system he had power of, of, of being victimized by someone that we are quick to push aside. And he could have used that power mercilessly to punish the, the young man who shot him. But instead he chose to have mercy. He chose to let go of his power and soften his heart 
Now I imagine that when he became paralyzed from this bullet wound, that he probably had a strong impulse to use this power to lock that young man up and throw away the key and communicate with the guards in that, in that prison to, you know, he, he shot a cop, this guy should suffer. And it's understandable that he thought that because we have been raised with this cultural understanding of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that justice demands retribution and revenge. But Stephen MacDonald came to a deeper understanding than that. And he said, I'm going to read again what he said, I believe the only thing worse than receiving a bullet in my spine would have been to nurture revenge in my heart. I think he lived out that adage that says, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. He could see that if he took revenge for this act, then there would be someone who took revenge for his act. And there would be someone who re took revenge for that act. And on and on and on in an endless cycle that would leave the whole world blind. So instead, he chose freedom. He chose the freedom of mercy and the freedom of forgiveness and the freedom of the possibility of redemption. I'm so grateful for him for doing that. Another story, and this is a hard story. On the morning of October 2nd, 2006, Charles Roberts walked into a tiny one-room schoolhouse in, house in the Amish community of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. And after sexually abusing 10 young schoolgirls, he shot them, killing five. He then turned the gun on himself. Hours after the attack, a group of Amish made their way to the house of the attacker's widow, Marie Roberts, not to burn the house down or to deliver a lecture. They came to offer their concern for the couple's three young children. The Amish community donated money to help the family through the financial hardship of losing their breadwinner, who the Amish knew because he was a milk delivery man in their community. On the day of Robert's funeral, several Amish families, some of whom had just buried their young daughters the day before, gathered at the small Methodist church where he was to be buried. Over half the funeral's attendees were Amish. These Amish people practice mercy seriously. Just imagine, what could be worse than having your daughters abused and murdered? Look, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that. And 
So were they justified in being angry? Yes, of course. Were they justified in seeking revenge? Well, based on our whole cultural history, yes, they were justified. But instead, they showed mercy on the killer's family and on the killer. They took seriously the core of their spiritual um, path, which is to practice Jesus' admonition to love your neighbor as yourself, even when their neighbor treated them horribly, even when their neighbor didn't deserve mercy. So one of the reasons why this story is really moving to me is that their practice of mercy shifted the world. I remember this time. I remember this. And countless people were inspired by their actions, by how a few bereaved families rose above retribution and revenge and lived the practice of mercy. They showed us a better way. Well, the Amish aren't alone in this um, beautiful skill of offering mercy. I think about the, the stories that have come out uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of the Chinese government and their treatment of the Tibetan monks. When the Chinese government came into Tibet, they imprisoned a lot of the monks and they tortured them, and they starved them. And I remember reading that one Lama, when he was asked if he was afraid during the torture and the starvation, said, no, but only once. And it's when I thought that my heart might harden against my torturers. I was mostly afraid of losing my compassion. Can you imagine this? I mean, can you imagine being in a cold cell, starved and tortured and having mercy like that? And your main concern was that your heart might shut down toward those very people? So I don't want to imply for a moment that being merciful is easy because it is not easy. It's not easy because it asks us to give up our illusions of power. And who wants to do that? And please don't imagine for a minute that those Tibetan lamas or that those Amish people are somehow different from you and me. That those, somehow those differences made it possible for them to do this effortlessly. They are just like you and me just like you and me. And their, their way of life does not negate their basic human emotions any more than our odd Zen ways would negate them for us. Somebody looking in from the outside might think, oh, well, that would be easy for them. But it's not easy for us. And it's not easy for the Amish either. Mother Teresa said, for love to be real, it must cost it must hurt. It must empty us of a self. And I believe it cost the Amish people 
a great deal to practice that mercy, but they still did it. So in Zen, we, we talk about empathy and compassion a lot. And I want to distinguish that from mercy, because we can have empathy for another without giving up our power. And we can have compassion for another, we can act with compassion for another without giving up our power. But mercy asks more of us. It asks that we have empathy by feeling another person's pain, and it asks that we have compassion by acting from that feeling, but it also asks us to let go. Mercy asks us to let go of our illusions of self-protection. To let go of our illusions of self-righteousness. To let go of our illusions of power over another. This is a lot to ask. But it's the heart of our practice. This is what we do every day when we sit on the cushion. We let go. We let go. We let go. So there's really good news in this. There's very good news in this. And here's the good news. When we let go of those self-centered concerns that mercy urges us to let go of, we find freedom. We find freedom. And we find that offering mercy, which once seemed so inconceivably difficult, is actually deeply joyful. <laughs>